Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. What makes a slasher iconic? What separates one killer from another? The way in which they kill? The mask they don? If slasher series and their titlier antagonist weren't defined by these intrinsic character traits, the genre would be a blur of frenzied killers lacking any real sort of identity. To lack this identity would give credence to slasher naysayers who dismiss the genre as mindless violence. And while films operating within the genre are certainly violent, they're rarely mindless. Often these films are birthed out of real-world sentiment in addition to a director's need to scare the hell out of their audience. And for the countless numbers of killer slashers, no other film has aged quite like Toby Hooper's sun-scorched masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Over the course of the next seven weeks, I'll be reviewing each entry in the evolving and shifting Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. I'm incredibly excited given I've only ever watched the first two films and the 2003 remake. There's a whole lot of Leatherface and the Sawyer family stories I'm unfamiliar with, and I'm excited to experience more of the cannibalistic mania that Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel created. But let's start at the beginning. Released in 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a backwoods trip to hell. When brother and sister Franklin and Sally receive news that their grandfather's grave has been vandalized, they rope in several friends to brave a sweltering road trip across Texas to investigate. Their backroads investigation puts them in the crossroads of the cannibalistic Sawyer clan. But their backroads investigation puts them in the crossroads of the cannibalistic Sawyer clan, who unleash their skin mask wearing, chainsaw wielding son Leatherface upon Sally and her friends. Now, the teens must brave more than the heat if they want to leave Texas with their skin intact. As with any film worth its salt, the idea for the film didn't come overnight. Written by Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel, the film was almost about something entirely different. Hooper said in an interview with Texas Monthly Magazine, Before I came up with the chainsaw, the story had trolls under a bridge. I personally couldn't believe this. I would bet most of us assume that crafting a story is very clear-cut, when the reality is, Even the most simplistic premises have lived several different lives across numerous scripts. The film's now iconic title also wasn't decided on until a week before they began filming. They originally bounced around a few names such as Head Cheese, Stalking Leatherface, and simply Leatherface before finally landing on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film's final title grabs the audience by the shoulders with its strange and savage overtones. The true centerpiece of the series, which would help to further distance itself from other slasher films, was its antagonist's main means of mayhem and murder. The idea for Leatherface to wield a chainsaw was influenced by Hooper's experience at a hardware store during the bustling holiday season. Hooper's on record saying he fantasized about cutting through the hordes of shoppers with a chainsaw that he saw in a nearby display. This morbid fantasy jump-started his brain to think in terms of repurposing power tools for carnage. And luckily for us, this anecdote allowed him to give birth to a new type of cinematic evil. His inspiration didn't stop there, though. One of the major selling points of the film was that it was based on a true story, which, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, is absolutely not true. The events of the film are in no way based on a singular event. That being said, the film does draw inspiration from another of real-world events and anecdotes from Hooper's personal life. The idea for the horrific cannibal butcher Leatherface, a bolstering baby of a man, was largely inspired by real-world serial killer Ed Gein. Gein was known to defile and eat corpses, as well as repurposing their skin and bones to create lampshades and furniture. These disturbing elements are key to not only Leatherface's persona, but come across in the grimy, manic atmosphere that the film so flawlessly portrays. As we're gradually introduced to the various members of the Sawyer family in their home, we realize that their primary vocation revolves around repurposing their victims, much like Gein did. While Leatherface is iconic for many reasons, his most overtly defining trait has to be his mask. 
Part of what is so horrifying about him is that he fashions masks cut from the skin of his victims' faces and stitches them so they can be worn. Even this grotesque character detail Hooper claims he drew inspiration from, from a real-world conversation he had. In an interview with Texas Monthly, Hooper stated, The idea actually came from a doctor. He told me a story about how, when he was a pre-med student, the class was studying cadavers. He went into the morgue and skinned a cadaver and made a mask for Halloween. I find that a majority of killers' masks serve as a mere cosmetic difference to help differentiate themselves from other killers. And while I don't say this to besmirch others like Jason or Michael or Ghostface, Leatherface's mask is representative of his identity. Given that he's in the same vocation as Ed Gein, repurposing his victims is in line with who his character is. It's more than just a mask to cover a horrifically disfigured face. He wears his kills so he can embody them to a certain degree. Now, as it's true with anything, introductions are important. They inform us about the quality and integrity of a relationship. And the viewer's introduction to the series' pinnacle villain, Leatherface, is one hell of an unforgettable experience. As adventurous horror film characters usually do, Kirk is the first to stumble upon the Sawyer family. Looking to exchange his guitar for gasoline, he pokes his head into the Sawyer house and calls out, but to no answer. Though, as he shouts louder, he hears a squealing sound coming from a room at the end of the hall, a small ramp leading into a wall covered in animal skulls. As the squealing gets louder and louder, Kirk rushes towards the door, only to stumble on the ramp, which is when the towering Leatherface stands over him, brandishing a hammer. Kirk is brutally struck in the head, causing him to go into muscle spasms. His legs kick wildly, clattering on the wooden ramp. Leatherface strikes him once more, silencing his kicks, and in two swift movements, picks up his body and throws it into the slaughter room off-camera, before slamming shut a previously unseen silver meat locker door. Keep in mind, I'm a 90s baby, so I came to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre late. By the time I was in high school, I had seen lots of modern slashers and the subsequent effects that came with them. So when I finally did check out the movie, I was shocked to learn just how few instances of blood and actual gore there are within the film. Outside of a handful of bloody smears or slashes, there's virtually zero blood. This is mostly due to Hooper striving to receive a PG rating for the film, as an R rating would limit the amount of people who could see it. We have to remember that the film released in an era where the ratings were as follows. PG, R, and NC-17 are X-rated. There was no PG-13 rating in 1974. Of course, the MPAA didn't care that there was a lack of blood or gore, given the extreme and intense nature of the film, and they of course slapped it with an R rating. The film was even banned in the UK for several years, due to its subject matter. For my money, the film stands as one of the scariest films ever made, in spite of it being devoid of much graphic content. And Kirk's death sequence is front and center for that reason. This scene is shockingly violent, disturbing, and most importantly, sudden. From Leatherface's deceptive pig squeals to suddenly appearing in the doorway brandishing a meat tenderizer, his agility for being such an imposing figure is terrifying. It's kind of like how running zombies are ultimately scarier than the shambling variety. Slasher villains that can run or move quickly are ultimately more terrifying to me, but what truly scared me about the sequence was the ferocity of Leatherface slamming shut the slaughterhouse door, cutting off Kirk's last hope at rescue or help. And just as suddenly as Leatherface is introduced, he disappears doing God knows what to Kirk's limp corpse behind the meat locker door. While Hooper and Hankel are responsible for creating Leatherface, Gunnar Hansen brought the cannibalistic killer to life. As seems to be the case with the majority of iconic films, the killer was almost cast by someone else entirely. Detailing his biography, Chainsaw Confidential, Hansen notes that he only got the role after the original actor to play Leatherface got pissed drunk and holed himself up in a motel, refusing to come out. Fortunately for Hooper and horror fans alike, this allowed Hansen the opportunity to don the slaughterhouse apron and skin mask of Leatherface, an opportunity he certainly would not squander. One of the characteristics that separates Leatherface from other killers is his big baby persona. 
In so many words, Leatherface has always been portrayed as being mentally handicapped or deranged to a certain degree. This makes him somewhat sympathetic, despite the torment he inflicts upon those outside of his family. Incapable of speaking or fully comprehending what's happening around him, Hooper says the reason that Leatherface is violent is that he feels threatened by the presence of others. He doesn't understand where these teens keep coming from, nor understanding what they want. You might even say, from his perspective, this is very much a siege film. These strangers continue to show up, most of the time running straight into his house, and he reacts by defending himself. It's a strange predicament, being faced by a killer that doesn't kill for pleasure, or with malice, but due to protecting himself and his family. All he has been taught is what his family has decided he should know. Thus, all he knows is meat and butchery, and due to his family's influence, the meat has been substituted from one protein source to another. To help him embody Leatherface's mental capacity and subsequent movements, Hansen did two days of observation at a residence school for people with mental handicaps. While today this would most likely be met with some harsh criticism, to say it didn't impact his role would be categorically untrue. He captures Leatherface's savage yet clumsy movements and babbling to a degree that never feels performative. You can actually feel Leatherface's fear in a number of scenes, especially after he kills Jerry, as we see him scurry around his house, peering through windows terrified at the notion that more people will intrude upon his house at any moment. Part of what makes the film's antagonist so horrifying is Hooper capturing the genuine terror and atmosphere of the film. For the most part, Hooper wanted Hansen to stay away from the rest of the cast, so that way the first time they saw him, they would emote genuine fear. In particular, Jerry's death scene, where Leatherface once again springs upon an unsuspecting character with a meat tenderizer, was supposed to fall backwards. But when he saw Hanson in his costume for the first time, Jerry ran screaming through a door and off the set. There was also an instance where a crew member's small daughter wandered onto the set and got one look at Hanson and ran away screaming. It wasn't just his appearance that displeased the cast, but his putrid scent. Given the film's initial micro-budget of $60,000, they could only afford one Leatherface outfit, and thus didn't dare to have it washed, for fear of it being destroyed or discolored, which could be a continuity nightmare. The result being that Hanson was sweating in that costume for 12 to 16 hours a day, for every day over the course of the 32-day shoot. Given that the temperature that summer was consistently in the hundreds, yeah, you could say it was probably pretty fucking rank by the end of that shoot. These dire filming conditions are largely responsible for the cast adhering to the manic feel of the film. Hooper's decision to make a sun-scorched slasher not only defied traditional genre convention, but it seemed counterintuitive. How the hell is the audience supposed to be scared if there's no place for the horrors to hide? Well, for starters, Hooper made the viewer feel as if they were traipsing around rural Texas in the midst of summer, half hallucinating and half delirious with thirst themselves. The opening shot of the film does a tremendous job of building this sense of unease that sticks with me the entire film. After a brief news-style monologue intro, the film opens with a camera bulb flashing, illuminating several decomposing bodies. The suddenness of the periodic illumination of corpses is overtly disturbing, but it's the haunting echo of the camera bulb flashing that truly unnerves. Often Hooper's film style and Leatherface himself are the main praise the film receives, yet I seldom hear anybody talk about the stellar sound design. Moments such as when Pam stumbles into the Sawyer house, trips and falls into a pile of animal fur and bones. As she looks around the room, realizing everything in the house is constructed from animals and people, and this is when Hooper infuses a truly manic score with wild camera work, capturing the character's panic-inducing realization that she's just willingly stumbled into hell. And while we're talking about sound, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has instilled in me a lifelong fear of chainsaws. Not because I'm afraid some thick southern boy is going to carve me up with one, but rather 
It's the chilling rattle of the saw itself. Unlike most slasher icons, we can hear Leatherface before we see him. When he's chasing Sally through the woods or down a dirt road, you hear his saw ripping and roaring right behind her. The constant reminder that if she slows for a second, she's likely to lose a limb. This is what makes such scenes as the nighttime woods chase that much more shocking. When Sally and Franklin are attempting to find the others, Leatherface pops out of the bushes and carves up Franklin who screams in agony. Now, Sally must maneuver through the twisting woods in an attempt to escape. While we see glimpses of Leatherface chasing her, the roar of his saw is ever-present and dominates the scene. Hansen has said that the true challenge of that scene was the combination of it being a night shoot and his mask cut off his peripheral vision. This caused him to actively trip while running, launching his saw into the air, landing only inches from his head. Which wouldn't have been problematic had it been a prop chainsaw, which, of course, it wasn't. The extreme conditions with which the film was shot under have been highly detailed by the cast and crew alike. 100 degree shoot days, grueling 17 hour shoots, and the infamous dinner scene being the most savage of the scenes shot for the film. This is one of the few films that's grown even more uncomfortable to watch after learning that a majority of this scene wasn't really acting. Rather, the actors were living it for real. By the end point in the film, Sally's been kidnapped and tied to a chair seated at the Sawyer's dinner table. As the Sawyers leer at her hungrily, Sally screams and screams at the reality that she's next on the chopping block. Her character's fear was fueled by Marilyn Burns' real-world fear that filled her during the shooting. In an interview with Hansen for his memoir Chainsaw Confidential, Burns said, You scared me to death. I didn't know you really at all. And by this time, you're not sure if it's real or a movie. And snuff films were just coming in at this time, and I'm thinking, this is too real. The leering. Leering when you started coming at me, that was really, really scary. This fear was also fueled by a grueling 26 to 27 hour film session trying to get this sequence just right. By this point, Burns was no stranger to stressfulness and physicality of the shoot. She'd be covered in bruises by the end of some scenes, especially one in which Daddy Sawyer, played by Jim Sidow, was supposed to beat her around the head and arms with a broom handle. When it came to the dinner scene, the entire cast and crew were essentially manic in their wanting the hellish shoot to end. So much so that many stated they weren't really acting at this point. The craziness of the characters came naturally as they were all well past their breaking point. Things truly turned even more sour when in a scene when Sally was supposed to have her finger pricked by a knife so that Grandpa Sawyer could drink her blood, the trick knife paired with a blood tube wasn't working. By Hanson's own admission, fed up with waiting to wrap the scene, he removed the tape on the knife, which was there to avoid really cutting burns, and slit her finger open for real. It's incredibly disturbing to learn that a moment of real violence occurred while depicting supposedly fake violence. This entire scene is the perfect culmination of what separates the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from other slashers. Hooper's making the sweaty, rank, and manic energy of the characters and events unfolding palpable for the audience. It makes for a disturbing and uncomfortable watch every single time I watch it. And to be honest, I find myself watching it probably every other month. It's rare in rewatching a film that your initial reaction to it is replicated with every viewing. And yet, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, much like Burns said, at some point you forget whether or not this is a movie or a snuff film. It isn't just what is depicted on screen, but the way in which it's captured. Hooper knew how to take the insanity of the events and present them in an incredibly raw way. Not raw in the traditional sense of this movie looks rough, grungy, and old and dirty, but through its strange use of sound and camera manipulation that elevates the insanity to new, unprecedented highs. This is largely what makes the film timeless and an inspiration to filmmakers of all genres, not just horror. And that's going to do it for part one of my Texas Chainsaw Massacre series review. That was certainly a long one, but I figure I would do a deep dive considering the original is one of my favorite films of all time. Next up is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which Hooper returned to direct 
and could not be more of a different film than the original. Can't wait to see how it holds up, because as I remember, I was not too fond of it the first time I saw it, but we'll see. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.